This is Paul Schneiderman on Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. This is the fifth edition of my show where we're hitting on various policy issues of sports and some other things surrounding the sports world as well. Today as my fifth guest, I have a very special guest, Kevin Calabro. Kevin does not need a long introduction, but I will mention that Kevin was the longtime Sonics play-by-play announcer from 1987 until the franchise's unfortunate departure from Seattle in 2008. Kevin has been a multiple recipient as the Washington State Sportscaster of the Year. Kevin is currently the Portland Trailblazers play-by-play announcer. Kevin's also worked for ESPN, ESPN Radio, the Pac-12 Network. Westwood One, he's been a hockey announcer, college and high school announcer, former host of the Kevin Calabro Show on ESPN Seattle. Kevin, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Paul. Thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. Kevin, we're going to be cramming a lot of topics in today. I, I, as I mentioned to you off the air, I could just focus with you on one topic or two, but I want to get a lot in, in, our, in this 27-minute show. So, Kevin, I want to start with my first question. You are known very much as a Seattle and Pacific Northwest guy. I don't think a lot of people know that you actually grew up in Indiana. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit when you got the broadcasting urge, the broadcasting bug as a young person growing up in Indiana? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, My father was uh, uh, an educator. He taught junior high and high school and uh, was a principal uh, of a, a grade school. And sports was very much a part of Obviously, the culture growing up, uh, there weren't a whole lot of other distractions or uh, entertainment. Uh, we had one theater uh, growing up on the, the suburbs of the west side of Indianapolis, and uh, we had three channels, and they were all black and white. So, you know, pre-internet, uh, pre-diversion, no video games to speak of, sports was it. And so uh, the hub of our social life as a community revolved around high school sports primarily and that meant uh, high school basketball and football on friday and, and saturday nights there on the west side of town at ben davis high school in indianapolis indiana uh the indiana pacers came to town in 1967 they were one of the charter members of the american basketball association the aba the red white and blue ball and sure. point line uh became uh, very popular and i was 12 years old at that time and uh, I remember my parents taking me to the old Coliseum and the fairgrounds in downtown Indianapolis and seeing some of the great Pacer greats of, of the past, uh, including George McGinnis, who was just uh, uh, enshrined in the Basketball Hall of Fame. So uh, that, that really is where uh, the genesis for the love of basketball began. Of course, I played. I didn't ever play, obviously, at a high level. I think I, 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 I was actually a better baseball player, played varsity baseball through my high school career and uh, gave up basketball my sophomore year because I couldn't crack a 15-man roster. <laughs> Sounds but familiar. We, we were lucky enough to have a high school, I, we were lucky enough to have a high school radio station, uh, Paul, and, and, and that's uh, where my radio career began when I was 15 years old, working on the high school radio station, calling play-by-play of, uh, of our high school basketball games and, you know, calling the action of, uh, a lot of my teammates from the baseball team and, and guys that I, I grew up with. So it was a, we had a great deal of fun. And of course the, the voice of the Indiana Pacers at that time was a, a fellow by the name of Jerry Baker. who was just a, a great announcer still earning a living uh, at the age of 78 in Indianapolis, Indiana on the microphone. And uh, Jerry was uh, just a, a, a tremendous talent and enjoyed listening to him as a kid. And then 
once I graduated from Butler University in Indianapolis, actually worked for Jerry, who is the the sports director at WIBC in Indianapolis. So I uh, I had a lot of great mentorship. I had uh, a, a fair number of breaks, and I had a, a great interest in sports and in radio. And you know, it's one of those kids that would uh, listen to to any baseball game I could pick up on my little AM transistor radio as well. <laughs> my dad was a radio man. Uh, in World War II uh, in the Pacific on an LST in the South Pacific. And so he got me kind of interested in that, that magic of sending signals through the air and so forth. In fact, I remember when we were, uh, he and I built a, a crystal radio set, uh, a little kit, and extending a copper wire outside my bedroom window out to an apple tree that was back behind our house and actually be able to pick up a couple of frequencies on those little radio uh, receiver that we made. That was pretty fascinating stuff. So great background. That's in a nutshell how I got involved in it. Great background, Kevin. A lot of names are of famous broadcasters have done very well in national and local markets. You take names such as yourself, Dave Niehaus, Bob Rondo, that a lot of Seattle people, of course, know about. Then you got Vince Scully, Chick Hearn, Dick Emberg. I'm just throwing out a whole bunch of names to you, Kevin. Who 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 are a couple of your favorite broadcasters on the play-by-play level, Kevin? Yeah, you know, those are all West Coast guys who I, I obviously had heard of growing up in the Midwest, but because I couldn't get them on AM radio, uh, they were just they were just, you know, broadcasting names. Uh, I would listen to guys like Jay Reynolds out of New York City do an overnight show, a disc jockey at WABC in, in New York. Uh, but the play-by-play guys that I listened to primarily were guys that obviously you've heard of. Jack Buck at the great KMOX in St. Louis. Uh, Harry Carey, who was uh, in St. Louis and then was up in Chicago as both the the television voice of the Chicago White Sox and then, of course, a long run as the voice of the Chicago Cubs. I listened to Van Vance down in Louisville do uh, the University of Louisville Cardinal uh, basketball and football, another great announcer. Uh, Al Michaels was at WLW in Cincinnati. Great broadcaster. Terrific. Yeah, a great broadcaster doing the Cincinnati Reds. That was his first major league gig. I think it was either there or in San Francisco, one or the other. But anyway, he was in WLW in the early 70s. And I remember listening to him uh, do the broadcast alongside a, a, a great talent by the name of, of Joe Nuxall. And then, obviously, Marty Brenneman, who later became the voice of the Cincinnati Reds. So, you know, listening to all those guys, those were just great announcers. Uh, uh, Bob Prince's name comes to mind as well. Bob Prince was the voice of the radio voice of the Pittsburgh Pirates on one of the great stations in America, KDKA in Pittsburgh. So those were the, the primary voices that I used to listen to when you know I'm I'm, I'm sitting there at, uh, at night uh, dialing across uh, with an AM radio out in the middle of a cornfield, maybe <laughs> Indiana in the summer. I want to ask you about the broadcasting fraternity. In today's broadcasting culture, Kevin, is it a fraternity with you and the other broadcasters, say the other play-by-play announcers, or is it more of a close-to-the-vest situation? How how close are the other broadcasters to each other? Well, I mean, there's some guys that see each other socially. I'm, I'm, I really can't say that I, I do that. I, I think we're, we're kind of far removed up here. Obviously, you spend a lot of time uh, with your the staff that you're, you're working with, your producers, your directors, and uh, whoever the radio or television voice might be. I've known Brian Wheeler for better than 20 years now. He's celebrating his 20th year as the voice of the Portland Trailblazers on radio. So I've known Wheels a long time. So 
uh, do socialize with wheels. And then when I was in Seattle here, we were doing a simulcast for many years. We did a simulcast for, I think, 20 years, something like that. But uh, Bob Blackburn and I got to be good close friends and, of course, work together on the air as well. I think it's more a function of the guys that you are working with in, in your market uh, than, than anything else. But, uh, we, you know, there is a collegial type relationship that you do have anytime we roll into town. Uh, say it'd be Memphis, or you're talking to uh, the, the guys there, or you're rolling down to Atlanta, or you know wh- whatever stop you're making in the NBA, you make it a point to talk to the radio and TV voices of these sure. of these markets. And you know, I, I had I had a pretty good relationship when I first started uh, with Chick Hearn. As a matter of fact, he was great. Games. I was. I go back to the days of the Kansas City Kings. I did a season with the Kings, and I remember rolling into. Los Angeles, the first time I did a Laker game, it was a night in which Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had broken Will Chamberlain's scoring record the night before in Utah. And on this particular night in Los Angeles, they were going to have a huge uh, celebration for Kareem before the game. Well, being a young broadcaster, I was, I was, a, little, I was a little green. I was unaware that they were going to do an, an extra 15 minutes of the pregame show. And uh, Chick Hearn uh, brought me aside and, and he said, uh, now, are you aware that we're going to be doing a, a special program for Kareem? And I said, no, I had no idea. And he says, well, he says, I'm going to be down off the court. Uh, Jerry West is going to be there. We're going to bring Wilt in. We're bringing a lot of luminaries in, a lot of Lakers, and we're going to you know, have a, a special program. Would you like to have that for your air? Would you like to broadcast that? I said, well, absolutely. How do I do that? So at the time, he had a he had a one-armed engineer named Monty, and Monty got to work. He strung a cable from their broadcast location a couple of rows in front of me all the way back to where I stood uh, with, with this, this pretty uh, – uh, it, it, it was a Spartan operation, let me put it that way. <laughs> it was, uh, and, and he was able to p- plug it into my, my soundboard, and I was able to, to take the 15-minute pregame show. Uh, with Chick, of course, orchestrating down on the floor. I wish I had a tape of that. I'm sure I could probably YouTube it at some point, but it worked out beautifully. I was able to broadcast that back to our audience in Kansas City and uh, and obviously broadcast uh, some history as Chick Hearn was out there to to uh, introduce Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on the, the night after he had broken Wilt's record and then, of course, bringing Wilt Chamberlain out there for words as well. So and it just gives you an idea of, of kind of the collegial – cooperative relationship that great uh, stories that we as broadcasters have. Yeah. This is Paul Schneiderman on sports and stuff with Kevin Calabro. Kevin, I want to ask you about a contemporary issue. Don't worry. I'm not going to probe you on your personal political views, but there's some criticism right now that the ESPN hosts have gotten too political. What's your general take on sportscasters getting involved in politics? Well, in the case of Jamel Hill, I think she's paid for opinion. Uh, that's my, my take on it anyway, and, and, and that means personal opinion as well. And ESPN has had a policy in the past, of course, uh, with some of their personalities who, who have been given warning on previous comments that they have made. I'm thinking of Kurt Schilling, who'd been given a couple of warnings, actually, about some, some pretty intense and inflammatory things that he said. Right. Uh, Linda Cohen, I think, uh, while she obviously wasn't fired, I think you know, she was given a warning for some comments she made about the, the, the business itself uh, at, at ESPN. But there's an understanding that when you're with a club and with, your, with an organization or with, uh, when you're with a, a sports and entertainment network like ESPN, that uh, your, your brand is their brand. You, you as a personality uh, are working for them and 
you kind of uh, give yourself over to the company. Uh, and so you have to really be careful, I think, in the opinions that you express outside the lines of sports or or entertainment. But uh, I think the line has been blurred a little bit between not only in sports but in news as well between for sure reporting and punditry and punditry. And I think that's where we've got now uh, in the case of uh, of ESPN. Paul Schneider on sports and stuff with Kevin Calabro. Kevin, I watched a Sonic Skate documentary, and yours truly had a very, very small role in it, where I comment on some legal issues. You had obviously a much more prominent role in the documentary than than, your, than I had. But I remember in the documentary, Kevin, you expressed some pretty strong views about the way Howard Schultz sold the Sonics to Oklahoma City. Was that hard for you, Kevin, as an NBA guy, being very, very forthcoming about your feelings about what Howard did? You know, it was, uh, although my calculation was I had 21 years with the Sonics and a year with the Kansas City Kings, and if I never did another NBA game, uh, it would be disappointing, uh, but I would always be able to say that, you know, I had had a great track record uh, and did what I thought was, on balance, very consistent and good work and for sure had a number of great, great relationships over those 22 years doing uh, NBA basketball. Um, I did want to take the next step and I had been working for ESPN. Uh, I did want to continue to work for them. I had done some freelance work for Turner broadcasting as well. And I wanted to move forward and work for them as well. Uh, but you know, I felt like I, I really owed the fans of Seattle. And when, uh, Adam Brown, the, the producer uh, sat down with me, I had a real sense that he was going to, this was going to be a message to the fans that, uh, that he and Jason, the two producers, were doing the best job they possibly could with the material they had, which, mind you, uh, they, they were turned down for interviews by the commissioner of basketball, David Stern, the mayor of Seattle, Greg Nichols. Uh, I believe the governor didn't sit down with them either. Uh, Christine Gregoire, I think, was the governor at the time. Uh, Howard Schultz, none of these folks, uh, Clay Bennett, none of these folks would sit down and do an interview uh, with Adam and Jason. So considering the, the kind of job they did on that without without interviews from the key principles, but using the key principles' words uh, and, and public record, I thought they put together an, an extraordinary... And Kevin, the sentiments you expressed, the feelings of most of the fans, I mean, your words were not surprising, but it was interesting that you really let it rip a little bit. This is Paul Schneider. Yeah, I mean, Howard, Howard, had, Howard, had, Howard had spent a lot of time Paul talking about being great stewards and 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 how you know it was it was a uh, it, it was a city uh, uh, it was a city's legacy a, a state's legacy uh, the Sonics and how he was going to be a great steward well he was hardly that in selling to an out of town interest who had made it abundantly clear that he wanted an NBA team for Oklahoma City Bennett and that's on public record Bennett made it up abundantly clear that he was looking for an NBA team to fill the void left by the Hornets who moved back to Charlotte or back to uh, New Orleans uh, in, and obviously, and, and moved to Oklahoma city in the wake of Katrina. And they were, they did a terrific job by the way, in hosting that NBA team. And I think demonstrated that the fans were going to be behind it. City government demonstrated in Oklahoma city that they were going to be behind an NBA team and do what was necessary, obviously to get them into a building. So to then say that, you know, you had no idea that you were blindsided, by uh, by by Clay Bennett uh, in this deal, I think is I hear is uh, I, I I just think is wrong. 
Paul Schneierman on sports and stuff with Kevin Calabro. Kevin, you're back in the NBA with the Portland Trailblazers. There's talk there could be a $1 billion expansion fee right now. Give me uh, 30, 45 seconds, Kevin. There's talk that there could be a team in Mexico, but Seattle comes up a lot as a prospective expansion city. What do you see right now on the expansion horizons for Seattle, Kevin? You know, I, I, I'm thinking by the time the league decides they want to expand, that number may, may be a half. Um, you know, we have years to go on the uh, very lucrative television contract between ABC and uh, obviously between Disney, ABC, ESPN, and, and Turner Broadcasting. That is an extremely lucrative contract. So, and I'm not sure that the, the owners are going to be in a mood to share any part of that any part of that money. I don't know that they really need among the, the 30 existing teams a billion and a half. Don't get me wrong. It'd always be nice to have that cash up front as an expansion fee. But uh, the, the point being, there are no teams that, in my opinion, are on wheels that would be ready to move. The league simply does not have a taste for moving ball clubs. Uh, and they quite honestly have a leverage point in Seattle, knowing that you got one of the top markets with a legacy of NBA basketball hungry to get NBA back. That's a huge leverage point. Uh, obviously, it wasn't the case of Sacramento. It wasn't the case of the Milwaukee Bucks as well, and to a degree in the case of the Atlanta Hawks. So those teams are all staying in those markets and, and have new buildings or soon will have revamped type buildings as well in the case of uh, of the Atlanta Hawks. And so I... I'm not optimistic uh, when it comes oh, to the near future. Now, maybe looking five years out, there might be uh, the mood for expansion, but I don't see it immediately. Kevin, where are you personally right now in this key arena versus Soto debate in Seattle? Do you have any uh, preference on the prospective arena location for the for the future NBA Seattle team? Well, I think an area that is zoned <laughs> zoned for those types of buildings, uh, meaning the Chris Hansen uh, project down there, adjacent to Safeco Field uh, and the Soto area it just seems to me to be the, the, the best place in terms of traffic mitigation and so forth. You already have the infrastructure that exists down there to move large amounts of people in and out. And of course, as you know, the only barrier that remains is the, uh, the uh, situation with uh, Occidental Avenue uh, and the city council, I think, could remedy that very easily. But that was something in May of 2016 they elected not to do in a 5-4 vote. Politics obviously changed the context and, and the, the, the makeup now. Of the, the council has changed. You now have an interim mayor. You're going to have a new mayor, obviously, coming soon. Uh, you have a you know what is a very attractive offer to redo Key Arena, which is a facility that was owned by the city. It was part of the agreement and, you know, letting the Sonics uh, move out of town and, and backing off of uh, uh, litigation or up $41 million took care of the, the, the payment, uh, as I understand it, remaining on Key Arena. The city owns it lock, stock, and barrel, but they really don't have any vision for it. They've not had any vision for it going back to the late 80s. Uh, they've been hand-wringing since the late 80s on what to do with the space downtown, which is a, uh, is a very attractive, very valuable piece of property in the, in the city of Seattle. And it sounds like they, uh, the agenda is to, uh, the, to take care of Key Arena first and get that off of their plate, despite what Chris Hansen has laid out, which I think is an extraordinary offer, paying for his own building and then coming up with a vision as well with his own cash, his own money, his own capital. And yet the council is... Has, has turned nose up to that 
for some reason, simply because he didn't he didn't make this presentation six months ago. I, I don't quite understand that. To me, that's not the uh, that's not a good negotiating. Well, a lot of people are frustrated for sure. Part of the city. So. Kevin, we hear a lot. Exactly. We talk to you a lot more about the Seattle NBA situation. We hear a lot about how there's still some NBA franchises in trouble despite the $24 billion TV contract. Is that the case? Are there still a couple NBA franchises that are in trouble right now? I don't think so. I mean, they may not have the, the sheer numbers at the gate, uh, but I think that's only that's clearly just a function of winning. I think as long as the growth, the unbelievable growth that we see in value from uh, these organizations from, from uh, year to year, I just uh, I just don't see that there are, you know there are any teams that are in uh, financial straits uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Now, you know, anecdotally, you may not see as many fans in the stands in some of these games, uh, but keep in mind that's all a function of winning and also a function of uh, the number of stars that they have on a team and the star power that they have. But uh, the owners, despite these enormous contracts that they are paying, uh, believe me, are, are are still making a lot of money. Sure seems like it. Kevin, something else in the NBA we hear about a lot is the lack of competitive balance. It seems like every year there's maybe four or five teams are really in play to win the championship. Do you have any thoughts on the competitive balance issue, Kevin? Well, you have freedom of movement for the players to a to a degree. Uh, and, and so that's, I think, what's, uh, what's been created here is obviously a, a terrific team of the Golden State Warriors. It was built through the draft, by the way. Uh, keep in mind the year that Steph Curry came out, passed on Curry twice in that draft. So you have to wisely, uh, as the Golden State, uh, obviously, Clay Thompson. Uh, Clay Thompson had a collection of Draymond Green. You know, the, the Warriors weren't built by uh, simply going out and throwing money at free agents. And then, obviously, a, a great environment there, a championship environment. During Thompson Green all becoming, you know, what I what I consider uh, arguably top twenty players, all three of them. Um, atmosphere, winning atmosphere, championship atmosphere for a guy like Kevin Durant. So, so that creates uh, unfortunately some some imbalances because you could take one guy out of that one superstar out of that mix of Golden State, and I would say that they still have a darn good chance to. Win. What do you think is 82? What do you think, Kevin? Paul Schneiderman on sports and stuff with Kevin Calabro. Is 82 home games too many games? Yeah, it probably is, but uh, you know that's that's the the equation that we're we're dealing with right now, and that's uh, the way it's been penciled out, and that's the form, uh, and that's the, the, the revenue, and that's the come up with. Now, what they have done is the league has moved uh, the start of the season. 
um, up uh, a week, meaning now you've got a latitude, a little more leeway, playing less four games in five nights. The commissioner's taking steps now and insisting uh, that teams, if they do rest players, rest them at home rather than on the road. So in the case, let's just use Cleveland as an example. When they come to town, come to Portland and, and play LeBron, he's a rest. If he's going to sit, he's going to sit in front of his home crowd. Uh, and that, of course, you know, then, then, then the weight is on those teams um, rather than, you know, deny only going to get a chance to see those Eastern Conference teams one time and vice versa, the West and the East. So I think those, those are positive steps that the league has taken uh, this year to ensure that, that uh, teams don't rest players. Kevin, we got uh, less than – sorry to cut you off, Kevin. We got less than 30 seconds. Yeah. What, what's the, what, what do you see in the future happening for Kevin Calabro? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna work for the Portland Trailblazers and uh, I, I round out my my resume. I've got uh, uh, another several years with uh, the Portland Trailblazers doing television, and you know if if the travel doesn't wear me down and I still have the spark and the passion for it, I may go fishing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> love it, Kevin. Keep up the great work. It's been great to have you on. We'll talk more later. Well, thanks. Good luck with the show. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it.